Hello, I'm your host Chris Brown and welcome to Radicals in Conversation in-house. This is the first episode in a new podcast series collaboration between Pluto Press and Bookhouse, which is a fantastic independent bookshop on Wapping Wharf in the heart of Bristol. In addition to our usual monthly show, we'll be producing and sharing these episodes as well, all of which will be recorded on location at Bookhouse. Their in-house events programme features authors of some of the most exciting political non-fiction currently being published, and is providing a much-needed platform for activist voices as well. So it's a real pleasure to introduce this new series for the podcast. In our first episode, Stacey Clare, author of The Ethical Stripper, is in conversation with Amelie from the Bristol Sex Workers Collective. They talk about why many strippers are increasingly identifying with the sex worker label, how workers in the industry are now organising through the United Voices of the World, UVW Union, and the challenges that they're facing from both the mainstream feminist movement and workplace closures in the wake of the pandemic. So without further ado, we hope you enjoy the episode. Here are Amelie and Stacey on Radicals and Conversation in-house. Well, hello, Stacey. Hi, How are Emily. you? <laughs> nice to see you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's really nice to be here. Um, so I thought, did you want to give everyone a little introduction and, you know, just let us know who you are? Who am I? Uh, <laughs> yeah, good question. I, so Stacey is my dancer name. Claire is my real name. Ooh. So I'm outing myself there as well. But um, yeah, I started dancing in 2006 in Scotland, in Glasgow, when I was an art student up there. And I had the benefit of writing my dissertation about anything I wanted. And at that time, there was a big public debate going on about strip clubs, about SEVs, because there was, um, there was lobbying going on to try and shut strip clubs down. And there was actually a change in law in 2009, which had an impact on the industry. So I was working in the industry while this was happening and I was reading articles about my job and you know reading lots of feminist discourse about stripping and sex work and lap dancing and so I just really got into it as a kind of research area um, and because I was working in the industry while the actual legislation was debated in Parliament. It was just like I had this kind of fascinating insight into sort of understanding this is how the public see it and this is my experience of it and they're not really the same. So yeah, I just kind of ever since then became like quite passionate, I suppose. Like I have kind of an activist background. I've, I've done activism up in Scotland with Plain Stupid and just was always very kind of concerned about kind of social justice issues. And so I was like, right, I'm going to be a sex workers' rights activist. And um, since then, back in 2014, I helped co-found the East London Strippers Collective. And we've gone on to become a community interest company. And yeah, I've been quite involved in uh, the, the early days of the union. Yeah, just been quite kind of active on the scene, really. And then finally thought, OK, I better write a book while I've got the... <laughs> Well, I've got the time. Yeah, that's, so that was like going to be my next question because you started in like 2018 to write it, 2019. Uh, so the actual book, I mean, well, the thing was that the dissertation was handed in in 2009 and that was kind of like the first sort of ever since then, it was always like, I really need to like, I should write a book, I should write a book. Um, but back in 2016, I was approached by the publishers and launched the crowdfunding before I started writing, which is quite cheeky. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, everyone buy my book. I haven't written it yet. Uh, but thankfully enough, people did. They supported it. And um, so I started writing it in 2019. I handed in my first manuscript at the beginning of March 2020, just in time for everything to, crumble. to collapse. <laughs> and so what then became, you know, a kind of editing process took quite a bit longer there were quite a lot of delays to that but yeah it was a real labour of love. Yeah I was gonna say I mean because you were approached to write the book but even within that process because yeah you're a sex worker writing about sex work did you find like any barriers to it um were there like any issues that came up? 
Well, no, no, um, not in terms of just getting a book published, especially if it's crowdfunded, because then, you know, if there's already a community of people willing to invest in the project, then you can get a book published. But there's been more barriers to how the book's been received, which we might get onto. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the reason that the publishers approached me was that one of their commissioning editors actually came to an East London Strippers Collective party. No way. In East London <laughs> at the Bethel Green Working Men's Club. I think we did um, a Valentine's party and, you know, we, we started having coffees and she was like, would you be interested in writing... They were actually talking about doing an S series of essays, but it ended up becoming a full-length book. Um, so in terms of, there was no resistance with getting it published. But one thing I found particularly challenging was during the process of getting it edited, the book had to go through a legal edit. So the book had to be read by a libel lawyer because it's not fiction, because I'm writing about real people, real places, real stories, real businesses. There's a degree to which you have to be careful what you say and libel laws in the UK are quite strict. So one of the most challenging things, and I mean kind of like emotionally challenging, was being told by a lawyer, oh, you see that right-wing feminist that you've said that thing about, you can't say that. And I'm like, but she says whatever she wants about sex workers, but that's, you know, it's not the same. So uh, that was, really a kind of a bit of a sort of almost a breaking point for me I kind of yeah that was really tough yeah I can imagine I was thinking like in your in your book I mean you do go into it and you do explain it but maybe you know for people who are here who might have not read the book you do re um, refer to strippers as sex workers quite oh. often so why do you classify us as sex workers in like in itself what do you think the phrase that we hear often like sex workers work what does that mean mm. i've written a whole chapter called is stripping sex work where i really try and unpack this and try and kind of interrogate the phrase the the meaning i like i think it's probably fair to say that now there is quite a wide understanding that the term sex work is an umbrella term that it, it actually kind of encompasses people who sell sexual labor or you know trade sexual labor in some way and there's multiple ways that happens but 10 years ago at least 10 years ago i will say that was a lot of resistance among strippers to the term sex work and you know when i first started dancing there was what we also refer to as whorephobia this is maybe another word some of you may know but if you don't then it's basically the very specific stigma that we hold with regard to people who do sex work, right? And so there is kind of like a culture of whorephobia. I mean, it's still within, very much there. <laughs> it still is there within strip clubs, within, within sexual entertainment venues, right? And, and then I go into the kind of reasons for that being the problem of stigma, I guess, kind of social stigma. A lot of people uh, try to deal with social stigma by just kind of passing it on, going, well, you know, that's not me, that's nothing to do with me, right? But that never really resolves it, you know, you're just kind of passing the buck. Yeah, I mean, I feel like in the last sort of five years, particularly, there's just been like a really strong push for strippers to begin organising themselves alongside sex workers as sex workers, because what we do is a form of sex work. So the more that people can actually engage with that movement, the better. In your book, I saw, and I was so happy to see that because I've been so nerdy about it for like the last year, about licensing. I've just been like Googling the licensing in like literally every city ever. So when I saw you had a whole chapter about it, I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's um, not just me then. Oh, what a <laughs> um, So yeah, so I was just gonna, gonna say, I mean, once again, you bring it up in your book, but what do you think has been the impact of strip clubs being legal and regulated, like what impact has it had on our working conditions and, and our safety as a whole? Yeah, so yeah, that, that's true. There's another chapter I wrote called License to Strip. I had a go at trying to plot the chronology of licensing of strip clubs in the UK, which I couldn't find anywhere. Like I couldn't find an essay or a book or anyone else that had kind of had a go at this. So it's my understanding that it only really goes back about as far as the 1930s, 
with the first ever strip club, the Windmill, which is a, a known venue in Soho that was a strip club, then wasn't, then was, then wasn't. But basically, back in the 1930s, there's a film made about this place called Mrs. Henderson Presents with Judi Dench. And it's about the venue. The woman who ran the venue, basically, her son was killed in the First World War. And she was, she, there's this whole tragic story about how she thought it was terrible that he died without having seen a naked woman's body. And, um, Bless him. I know, right? <laughs> and so she went to the Lord Chamberlain, uh, who was like the person in charge of like giving licenses to theatres, basically, which is, there's another story about that history. And she managed to convince him that if the models were standing still, not moving, then it was just the same as looking at a painting in an art gallery. So what's the difference? And he was like, oh, all right then. So <laughs> she kind of opened London's first sort of Moulin Rouge style, you know, very much inspired by the Folie Bergère in Paris. But they all had to stand still and they had a revolving stage and they had curtains and lights and fans and that, that there was all this kind of these tricks about how they would create a tableau vivant but the models weren't allowed to move and that basically continued up until the 60s with the theatres act my understanding is from the 1930s up until 2009 is that the industry has essentially been like a wild west where industry standards were created by the people that ran the businesses it was very much a kind of like market forces type scenario. Up to 2009, 2004, there was a relaxation of public entertainment and there was a boom, like we saw this period for about five years, lap dancing clubs were opening everywhere, like every city centre had one, one was opening every week. And that got a lot of people really mad. Yeah, I think um, it was like, there used to be like five, six in Bristol. Yeah. And so a lot of people got really, really pissed off. A lot of residents kind of campaigned to kind of make that stop. And so 2009 has clamped down on it again. I think the 2009 Act has actually failed to achieve what it set out to do. They were saying that they wanted to make the industry safer and uh, have a less kind of serious, like wider social impact. But it's sort of based on spurious claims and sort of it's based on kind of arguments that aren't really evidence based. And so we've seen this change in the licensing conditions, but there was never any recognition of workers' rights. And we've seen kind of the number of clubs has closed down. I think about five years ago, there used to be 351 clubs in the UK. Now there's less than 150 probably less than 100 by now because of the COVID. And the conditions are not getting any better, they're getting worse. And that's because the club, the final remaining owners have got more power. Like they've got more power because we've got no, you know, we can't walk away. If there was a bad club, you'd go and work somewhere else. If there was, like, like in any industry, you know, as a labor force, you'd, you'd be able to, to choose. Just give them a, a monopoly over all of the venues. Yeah, so basically I just think that the Licensing Act, the, the Police and Crime Act 2009, sorry, has actually like totally failed the people in this industry. So for, for context, the 2009 Police and Crime Act is what brought in the SUV licensing yeah, um, to sexual intimate venues, which basically means strip club. So, which means that now local councils have individual power uh, to decide on what happens in the strip club, like whether we can touch, not touch, have to stand like five feet away from a customer, how many licenses can be given in a certain area, um, or if they just don't grant any at all, mm. uh, which is why. Excellent. Thank you. Really good point. Yeah, no, <laughs> that, that's what it's done. That act was the first attempt at actually defining by law what sexual entertainment was. It had never been defined up until that point. So it was legally defined as entertainment solely or provisionally for the purpose of sexually stimulating an audience, which can be an audience of one person. So I think what that act did was basically draw a ring around lap dancing and say, right, that's the thing that we don't like. We're gonna define it and we're gonna make it licensable and we're going to control it using licensing laws. The act has actually kind of really heavily stigmatised the industry as well. Yeah, I think it just brought down the number of venues, you said, and 
gives Monopoly. That means, yeah, we can't walk away from a club that's got terrible working conditions. And mm. it's just really limited our, our options and, and like our voices, our power, I think, as well. But what we found, like, especially in Bristol, and it's happened, you know, recently in, like, Blackpool last year, Edinburgh only very recently, um, is that, obviously, because now it's down to local councils, and when you apply for a licence, so, you know, not just a strip club, anything, you can have, like, members of the public opposing the licensing for whatever reason. So now what we found in Bristol, there's been a massive lobby from radical feminists that claim that strip clubs like make violence against women and girls worse mm. so i'm just wondering like what your take on that is like what do you make of those claims yes i've written another chapter <laughs> uh, funny that called um about exactly this it's about this um report uh, the lilith report there was one study <laughs> one single research paper that was published in 2004 commissioned by Camden City Council, I think. And as research papers go, it is an absolute hodgepodge of bollocks, if you'll excuse my <laughs> language, but it's not sort of quantifiably sound, like the methodology isn't sound. Um, it's been sort of like debunked by like social scientists with actual qualifications. <laughs> They've said like, well, you haven't done, you know, they, so the claim was that they looked at Camden they looked at the number of sexual assaults that happened in Camden, just looked at kind of police crime figures over the period of, I think, two years and said that, you know, they saw the number of sexual assaults go up in the area. And, oh, guess what? Two strip clubs have opened in the area as well. That must be the reason. But then when that was actually put through the mill of kind of rigorous methodology, if you compared Camden to neighbouring boroughs, they had similar rates of sexual assault and there weren't any strip clubs in the other boroughs. And then also if you took a longer sample size, which was like 10 years, they saw that the number of sexual assaults had steadily decreased. So the trouble with the Lilith report was it was kind of, it was publicly funded and it was released in 2002, just at this point when, like I say, there was this huge debate going on and there was a big radical feminist lobby trying to shut down strip clubs. And so the paper was kind of received into this kind of media environment where it was just swept up as fact. Yeah, taken as gospel. Repeated over and over again verbatim, just reproduced and recycled and, you know, republished in every major news outlet you could think of. And, and the, you know, before you know it, everyone in the country believes that strip clubs equal 56% increase in sexual assaults we're in still the area. Like, we still see it now. With, like, when we see when we look at the reports that have been submitted to Bristol, we still see the Lilith report been cited. We saw it shared in The Guardian last year. Oh, and it's just like, God. it's been debunked yeah. about five times now. Like. Yeah, and it's, but it just, it's like the report that won't die. That, you know, that statistic, that statistic of 56% increase in sexual assaults has been sort of turned into kind of like a fact, but it really is not true. And then there's also, you know, if you do the same rough calculations, you know, if you look at what happened during COVID, every strip club in the country was closed for two years. Did we see a decrease in sexual violence? No, we didn't. The, you know, comparative research or statistics with football violence, you know, there's a paper by, is it Leeds University that clearly shows that when England play in a football tournament that gender-based violence spikes. And um, yeah, it's just like, it's deplorable really that this is now what we're up against. And um, what do you make, cause, like, because the people who like, eat this up they see those reports they're like yeah this is fact this is true let's shut them all down what we found is see so blackpool last year voted for an ill cap uh, blackpool was a labor council then see bristol's been pushing for it labor council um edinburgh's voted for an ill cap and what we so an ill cap is a uh, essentially a ban on um strip clubs they're not awarding any strip club licenses anymore it's where the council gets to decide how many licenses that they give in an area and they can set that number at nil 
if they want to. Yeah. So, uh, and yeah, what we saw in, in Edinburgh was an alliance between um, Labour Party councillors and Tory councillors who agreed to vote for a nail cap. So yeah, why do you think, because you'd think Labour Party, left wing, they'll listen to the workers. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Why do I think Labour have become the party that want to shut down the sex industry? <coughs> Scabs. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I've heard Jess Phillips talk about wanting to limit the marketplace. You know, we're kind of living in neoliberal times where everything's for sale, every kind of form of labour is for sale but where do we draw the line? I feel like the Labour women seem to have just organised themselves around wanting a boundary. The unfortunate thing is that the Tories end up kind of being the party that are sort of more lenient, but for kind of all the wrong reasons, because they're just like, well, I mean, if you can make a buck, you know, that's one less person that we have to take care of. Yeah. So, you know, like, do what you want, basically. They're kind of much more sort of liberal in that way. I've just found, like, for me, it's, it's been, like, the Labour Party wanting to put a plaster on, like, a much wider issue. And it'd be like, see, we've protected women. We're doing really well. Oh, yeah, no, for sure, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there is this kind of rampant thing going on among the feminist left where they want to be seen to be the women who are doing something about gender violence. And we've seen that with Sarah Champion. Is it called hosting? In, in Parliament, like hosting a debate? Yeah, like... Different know. kind of hosting. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Sarah Champion calling a debate on, you know, whether we should have uh, limits on... Online um, Online advertising of, like, independent sex workers advertising online. So, I mean, it's, you know, party politics probably works in similar ways to sort of, like, branding and marketing. It's like, if they win votes that way, then great for them. Uh, but, you know, we get thrown under the bus. Yeah, just get left out, get left behind. Just wanted to bring it back to licensing. Obviously, we said, like, since it's been introduced in, like, 2010, it's not improved our working conditions whatsoever, actually decreased. Um, do you think something like unionising strippers would be a way to push back against that and, yeah, improve our working conditions? Well, I mean, I think unionising is part of like a much wider picture that kind of goes beyond the sex industry. I mean, I think, you know, like unionising is one of the only tools that workers have to push back against exploitative conditions. And I think the work that, you know, has been going on since 2018, since the formation of the Sex Workers Union, United Sex Workers, which are a branch of United Voices of the World, Got some members in here tonight. Yes, Woo! yes, yes. And, um, you know, there's been some absolutely stellar work being done, none of which is getting any public uh, media coverage, of course. But, you know, we've got members taking clubs to court and winning. We've got members getting thousands of pounds worth in compensation for workplace abuses because, of course, we were being exploited. But, like, how are we supposed to bring those claims if all our workplaces are just shut down tomorrow? You know, how, how are we meant to have access to justice if our jobs are continually marginalised, criminalised, pushed underground, made more precarious. And yeah, I mean, we are, I think we're seeing a kind of revolution in precarious workers fighting back and saying, do you know what, actually, enough, this is just fucked up. And I'm just so glad that, you know, sex workers are campaigning basically alongside other precarious workers because what else are we going to do? Yeah, so I only started dancing in like 2019. Worst timing ever, obviously, just before the pandemic. Uh, but I remember, like, very quickly being like, this is a bit fucked up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> why are we being treated like this? Like, why can't I? I'm self-employed and I can't go home whenever I want to go yeah. home. Like, what the hell? Um, but I'd had friends, like, who'd been dancing for ages and I was already, I actually already knew you from social medias and was following the East London Strippers Collective. And I remember seeing, like, I was literally sat down at work waiting for customers to come in. And I'm like, oh my God, have you seen this? Like a, a stripper worn in court against her club. Your friend Sonia. Sonia, yeah. Who, who worn against um, her club Browns in London. Mm. Do, do you want to tell yeah. us more about that case? Yeah, so we, uh, in, in 2020, um, February, 
there was a landmark ruling. Sonia Novak, uh, who is a Polish stripper and member of the East London Strippers Collective and several other organisations, um, joined the union and basically just started talking to her fellow colleagues, you know, in the club about the union. And they sacked her because they didn't want such things. And she was like, mm-mm, I think you'll find under employment law that's illegal. So she took them to court for, it's basically kind of trade union victimization. If you can prove that you think you've been sacked for, you know, you, she had to first of all prove that she had something called worker status, which was something that we needed to set a legal precedent for. It turns out this is kind of where uh, we will try and make employment law sexy, but <laughs> you've got three kinds of employment. There's self-employment, regular employment, and then there's this weird one called worker status, which is actually a type of, you are still self-employed, but if you can prove that you meet a certain set of criterias, like you've got to work certain shifts, you've got to wear certain clothes, you've got to follow certain rules, basically the more you're treated like an employee, then you are found to have worker status, and that comes with a set of rights. Again, it's relatively new regulation. It was written in the 90s. It's an EU directive. So who knows how long we're going to have it for? You know, we're waiting for the Tories to twig onto that and write that out of British law. But for now, we have got, you know, workers, workers have got protections. They have got certain rights. One of those rights is the right to join a union and the right to be part of a union and to talk to your workers about the union. So she had to go to court to prove that she had worker status, to prove that they'd broken that rule. And it was a really big deal. And it was just a couple of weeks before lockdown. So we had two, three whole weeks. So much hope. Of like, <laughs> we've got, we've done it, we've done it. We've got, we've got worker status for the entire industry. Oh, and now all your clubs are closed. Oh my God. Um, but that was, no, I mean, I was in London for the International Women's Day March that year. And it was just a electric and when we turned marched through the streets of Soho screaming you know sex workers in like full stripper gear and screaming about our rights and we turned onto the the strand and outside the Royal Courts of Justice they'd put neon letters on the railings that said decrim now and it was just like whoa we could actually we might that. actually do it, do it. <laughs> um, but no that I mean that so that case has been a game changer and, and you know it's set, like like I say it set a legal precedent and you know Sonia gave 14 months of her life to that you know she she'll never be employed in a strip club ever again <laughs> in the UK she you know she had to go through some pretty horrific bullying and uh, intimidation but I don't think she would have done that without the support from the union like that's also what a union can do is support members who are willing to you know be pioneers they wouldn't they people don't do it unless they feel like they've got support yeah i think what's like beautiful from the union is that it's like proper worker led i'm on the committee and who is on the committee is like the you know they do porn they do full service strippers and we're all there like we just learn mm. as like as we go uh, and we just proper support each other like it's not just organising, it's also just like, you know, being friends, being social and offering, you know, mental health support because burnout is real in this industry. Mm. Um, we're an industry where it's like, there's problems every single day. Like we get people reaching out to us all the time because there's just so many issues, you know, people getting their bank accounts shut down and their Instagram taken down, etc. Mm. or strip clubs. So yeah, it's like relentless, but, um, yeah, so one of the things we've been talking about in, in Bristol, for example, is uh, so the cap in Bristol for the licensing of strip clubs is set at three. There's only two strip clubs at the moment. So one of the things we've been arguing when the public consultation was out is like, please people, fill out the consultation that saying that like, we want to keep the cap at three. I think one of our like big dreams is having a 
a strip club run by workers. And that's something that we've talked about so much. So obviously a faraway dream, but who knows, maybe. So I was just wondering like, what, what would your ideal oh, strip club be? The perennial question. <laughs> this is like our favorite, one of the favorite topics in the changing rooms. It's like, oh, if we took over the club, it'd be so much better. Like, yeah, fuck this shit. I mean, yeah, this is obviously something that's kind of long been discussed. With the East London Strippers Collective having kind of gone in the area that we have with the business, uh, so we've set up a CIC, which is, you know, we are a company, you know, we make money, we do events, we run a life drawing class, we very often kind of go and take part in sort of corporate events and festivals and things like this. So, you know, we've got a business bank account. We've got, you know, we're registered with the company's house. We send out our report every year to the CIC regulator. And we've kind of, you know, looked into this. We've kind of looked into the whole kind of like running a strip club. And to be really honest with you, I think the actual SEV licensing regime has fucked it. Because with the SEV licensing regime, they've basically created a hostile environment They've given power to local residents to complain. They've given kind of, they've created this kind of democracy, which I would say is kind of like Brexit democracy. You know, they've kind of fed everyone this belief that, oh, you know, that's violence against women. Do you want it? You know, it's like the kind of boss, isn't it? The NHS boss, do you want it? So what are people gonna vote for? I mean, I just, I, I think that most people just don't have a solid enough grasp on the licensing law to, to really be able to kind of take part in a democratic process, but then who gets to control it? You know, the club owners clearly can't be trusted, the councillors can't be trusted, the local residents can't be trusted. It has to be workers. Whatever happens, it has to be worker-led. And I honestly think that the first club that can kind of put together a business that actually circumvents SCB licensing and manages to find a route around it and say, actually, we've decided this is how we're going to do it because we know our industry best. We know how to create our own safety mechanisms better than any of you. I just don't know how that's going to happen because, you know, unless you own a building and you own the freehold and you own the bricks and mortar that it stands on, you know, whatever you do, I, yeah, I just think it's really tricky. But whatever happens, you know, the future of the industry has to be worker-led. For sure. Um, if, yeah, because I'm guessing there's a lot of allies in the room. <laughs> Hello. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, what do you think, what can allies do to support strippers and sex workers as a whole? Well, <laughs> <laughs> there is something very specific you can do, which is, do you want to? Um, so, basically, um, as I mentioned, Edinburgh has decided to shut down all the clubs over there, so that's three club closing down, 150 dancers getting put out of work, and then obviously you've got cleaners, security staff, bar staff, etc. It's a lot of people to put out of work, um, so that will be coming into effect in April 2023. But the union, uh, United Sex Workers, thinks that we can contest it in court, so we want to take the council to judicial review on the basis that this is gender discrimination, um, because we'll see this is mainly a female workforce that this would affect. So we do think we've got a strong angle. Unfortunately, uh, going to court against a whole council is extremely expensive. Um, so from tomorrow on, we're launching a crowdfunder. So our first target is to hit £20,000. That's to support Edinburgh. But our bigger aim is to fundraise £40,000 to, you know, support any further case whether that's in Bristol, you know, possibly Westminster in the future, or any other council, um, or to support any worker that's been affected and, and needs the money. So that'll be live from tomorrow. One important thing to mention about the fundraiser is that it's high stakes, so like the future of the industry basically relies on that fundraiser being successful. If we're unsuccessful, it'll just send like a really negative message basically telling council that there's no position, that they're free to do whatever they like and that they can mm. shut down strip clubs right, left and centre and that no one's going to do anything about it. So um, it's really important that people donate uh, and share it as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, allyship comes in many forms. We rely so heavily on 
word of mouth, organic sharing, because we're so heavily censored on, you know, social media channels and there's so few media outlets kind of, you know, willing to like really give us a voice, particularly if what we have to say goes against the wider mainstream beliefs. Or, you know, if you're a sex worker critiquing mainstream feminism, mm -mm -mm, naughty, naughty. You know, so we rely so much on events like this. People who've got friends who are editors or run independent magazines or, you know, willing to run a story or, you know, share a post or something like, yeah, following, you know, sex workers on social media isn't just like because you want to look at our nipples. Um, <laughs> that's also okay, but not okay. <laughs> not on, no, not on Instagram. But like, we're fighting for survival, we're, fight, we're fighting to exist. And without those workplaces, that's the kind of critical point is without having, without legal workplaces, we cannot take action. You know, we cannot bring claims against abusive bosses if our workplaces are illegal. And the best example of this is in New Zealand in 2004, New Zealand fully decriminalized sex work. And 10 years later, a full service sex worker brought her brothel keeper to court for sexual harassment in the workplace and won. And a sex worker in this country can't do that now. Like a full service escort, you know, we're criminalized. We don't have access, you know, our workplaces are not allowed. So that's, that's really the kind of essential point here is that if we lose those workplaces and they're some of the only safe, safe workplaces that exist in the industry, then we really are like up shit creek without a paddle because then we've just got almost no access to any legal rights whatsoever. You know, it's not just a case of, oh, you know, bit of fun, isn't it, for the lads. It's more like, actually, this is safety for us and it's access to justice. Yeah, I think also like, because I was part of a research project recently and just in a demographic question, we asked people like, do you have any disability? So it was just for strippers. And um, I think like 25% of the respondents said they had a disability. That's a lot of people who are disabled who cannot work a traditional job. Um, also, you can't really have stripper on your CV. You can't turn up to any job and be like, hi, like you're just, you wouldn't even get an interview, let's be honest. Um, so it's just, it's not easy to get back into the traditional workforce. And also we're in the middle of like a cost of living crisis no one can afford to live comfortably on minimum wage at the moment. So I think it's, it's really morally wrong mm. and to push people into unemployment at, mm. you know, at this stage. I agree. Any questions? <laughs> <laughs> so the question was, um, I mentioned earlier on that there was some pushback um, when the book was released. Yeah, there was some pushback, yeah. Um, the first review that I got was like a full page in the Sunday Times. I mean, it was not like singing the book's praises, but it was kind of relatively balanced. And then a week later, I got another full page in the Times on the Saturday, and it was written by Julie Bindle. Oh, <laughs> I'm really glad to hear that. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> um, but I mean, I got, you know, lots of people around me and my publishers and my publicist were saying like, oh, but it's great. It's great. You know, it's what every writer dreams of, a full page in the Times. And I'm like, yeah, but she says it's shit. <laughs> and it was extremely derisive but in a quite a sort of really sneery tone. Um, but I mean, she has a lot of power, you know? The thing is that the, the Times is a, a gated community intellectually. Thankfully, the review's behind a paywall, but that doesn't stop, you know, the people within that paywall from reading and going, oh, well, yes, absolutely. But my publicist over at Unbound, who is an absolute champion called Rena Gill, Shout out to Rena for the podcast, who's been amazing, but has been telling me that the book has just been getting a lot of closed doors. None of the literary festivals will take it. You know, she's not able to kind of get it reviewed by most of the major platforms. There just is kind of like a radio silence around it, which I'm kind of going like, 
I've written a book about sex workers' voices being shut down by radical feminists. <laughs> and then this is an example of itself, like, very meta. Um, but no, there is this kind of insidious narrative laid out by the radical feminist left that a sex worker asking for to have rights is somehow a dangerous Machiavellian puppet for, you know, the pimp lobby. Basically like a turkey voting for Christmas who's asking for decriminalisation because that will open the door to all the pimps and abusers in the world to just go ahead and exploit us all we want, even though Harm reduction is evidence-based, so if you decriminalise something to allow people to access justice, then you've made it safer. And that's not a difficult thing for most people to understand. Like, genuinely, like, you know, I talk to people in the street, in the pub or whatever, harm reduction's simple, but there's just something about being a sex worker critiquing mainstream feminism that is just not allowed, at least for the moment. I think that that's kind of half of the battle is actually sex workers being allowed a platform, being allowed a voice. This isn't really a question, this is to say thank you. You know, I really think it's your generation that are going to change this absurdity. I, really, I sincerely hope so. And I want to thank you for giving us some kind of data, something that we can use to refer back to. We really need that. We need data and we need texts like yours to mm. refer back to because that's what legitimises our arguments. Mm. And so far we haven't really had a lot to yeah. back on. So well, the other amazing book as well is Revolting Prostitutes, right? And that's Juno Mack and Molly Smith. So everyone, if you're interested, if you've bought a copy of my book, please, please get yourself a copy of Revolting Prostitutes as well, which is so, so well researched and so dense with data, which, yeah, as you say, it's kind of really lacking. I also think Bristol Sex Workers Collective have done some amazing work with kind of what you've done with kind of comparative looking at police data to show that, you know, there are nightclubs in Bristol with way, way worse records of incidences of uh, gender violence, which are not being campaigned. No one's campaigned no, it's, to shut it's, them down. No, it's been really hard because, yeah, we've been coming again and again with this, like, evidence, mm. like black and white evidence. And but the, the goalpost keeps on being moved all the time. So like, no, it's not about this. And we're like, OK, well, here it is. Oh, no, it's not about that either. Mm. You know, yeah, we were like, as you said, uh, Earlier, we were like, well, this is data that happened during lockdown when everything was closed, including strip clubs. Like, yeah. violence against women and girls barely decreased. And they're like, it's not about that. Exactly, that's what we're saying. Is that's what happens in, you know, people's personal homes. And we're like, mm. the mental gymnastics you have to yeah. do. <laughs> and I gather that in terms of even trying to get airtime with these people, trying to actually get this kind of dialogue, you know, you get maybe half an hour or 20 minutes of someone's kind of time. You know, you can't sort of just, oh, you know, okay, we've met with the strippers for half an hour to tick that box. Yeah, we've consulted them, but we disagree with them. Like, dialogue is a conversation, and it's, it's just, it's really good to know that that's happening in Bristol at a grassroots level within the community that, you know, people are willing to, like, go out on a limb. Yeah, I think it's... it's and we've got activists here in the audience tonight, <laughs> Jessica Risque, Tuesday Laveau, who've both you know, put their necks out to support the kind of movement and, and to sort of stand up to this. You know, I don't think people will realise how many risks are involved with being vocal and active. Not just the abuse you get online, but you're risking your personal safety out there any moment. And because this has been going on since this round of things started 8th of March 2021, so it's been nearly a year and a half, I don't think people realise how difficult it is to keep momentum going for a year yeah. and a half to to keep that issue at the forefront to remind people this is still going on we still don't know if you're having a job next year like we're still stressed like for a lot of us we feel like our lives been put on hold for about a year and a half and yeah i don't think yeah a lot of people don't realize how much work has gone into it 
But that's exactly what the council can do and they can afford to do is if they do a round of public consultation and they don't get the answer that they want, well, they'll just do another one in another year and just keep doing them until they get the answer that they want because they have got that power, because they have got the resources to just keep going. Hi, um, do you feel like anti-sex work rhetoric um, has like got worse since Twitter, or has it just changed? Because I know Twitter's made everything into a bit of a free-for-all where everyone can just scream their opinions. <laughs> like, have you noticed much of a difference, or has it just sort of shifted a bit online? That's a good question. I think, yeah, Twitter can be a bit of a pit of despair. Uh, but it's also, I think, platform like Twitter for sex workers is also one of the only platforms where we're not censored. You can't say anything on Facebook, you'll get kicked out straight away. Instagram, pretty quickly as well. Um, it's owned so, by Facebook. Yeah, it's owned by Facebook. Um, so yeah, Twitter has been one of the only platforms where we're able to be vocal and express ourselves without being without being censored and I do think Twitter has had like quite a big impact um, especially you know Twitter being like a big bubble of like journalists and and stuff like this so that's how quite a lot of us have managed to get as big of a reach as as we've had um, but yeah I wasn't really in sex work activism pre-Twitter days so maybe. Yeah I mean it's a really good question like when I was studying I went and did a bunch of research into what was happening in the 70s and the 80s. And Julian Mack makes this point really well in Revolting Prostitutes, that a lot of early anti-sex work rhetoric was actually directed more at porn. It was much more the 2D images of sexualized material of you know women's bodies being kind of commodified and objectified in that way that they had such a big problem with. You know, I, I think that the messages the public receive about sex work come from that, that we are turned into sort of characters uh, almost in a sort of play. Um, we're objectified, you know, that you can't think of like a TV series or, a, you know, so many films like sex workers are, our narratives are kind of reproduced, but the reality, our lived reality, is like very different from that kind of objectified, you know, when we're with clients, we can talk to them, we can talk back, we can tell them to fuck off. Like, if we're in a club, if we have a rude customer, we can get him kicked out. You know, there's, there's all these kind of like micro acts of empowerment that we can access, but that you wouldn't know that from just looking at a pornographic magazine, because that is really just literally an image. So I think there's loads of confusion and loads of like a lot of kind of anti-sex work rhetoric is born out of that confusion, is born out of these kind of misalignments or these kind of misunderstandings of what it is we actually do and how we're seen and how we're portrayed. The kind of messages out there, like so much of what we're trying to do as activists is kind of unpick that and actually try and kind of deconstruct some of that rhetoric. But yeah, it's a really good question, because I mean, I don't know what it was like to be a sex worker in the 1970s when you had uh, Annie Sprinkle, who was this, you know, amazing sex worker turned performance artist who was just doing like, mad stuff, like <laughs> hilarious, play really playful, really joyous, like real celebrations of her work and her body. And then there was Carol Lee, who is an activist who's still with us, who I was so, so blessed to get in touch with and ask if she would be willing to endorse the book, which she, she did uh, while fighting cancer, I will say as well. So big up to Carol Lee. Um, but Carol Lee's the one who coined sex work, isn't she? Yeah, exactly. So she was the, more or less the first person who she describes going to like an anti-porn convention, I think, and she heard feminists talk about the sex use industry and she was like oh that's weird and so she came up with this term sex work and she describes it as being you know this is where we locate our agency as protagonists of our own stories and she's been a kind of theatre maker and a writer and she's you know the kind of godmother of sex worker activism in a lot of ways. It seems like the same people who want to portray like every sex worker as a brainwash victim uh, also want to say, like I think it was the Julie Bendall review that said like uh, that you're basically too privileged to be listened to because how would you possibly know 
about the harms that sex work causes because you went to university? Um, and how would you respond to the people who say that we shouldn't listen to you because of your privilege? <laughs> I would say I am those things. I did go to university. I am white. I do have certain privileges. Yeah, I mean, I can't sort of say that I speak for the whole industry. And I mean, she doesn't know about me. <laughs> like, you know, I come from sort of like not a very privileged background. Like the fact that I, yeah, I got a kind of education just by fluke. You know, like I managed to move to Scotland the year before I started university, which meant I was in the Scottish system. So I got a free, I got a bursary but this was just a few years before they finished bursaries. You know, like, I was so lucky, but, you know, a few years later, I would have been saddled with heavy, I mean, I still have debt. I've still got my student debt. I don't know how much it is. I'm not paying that back. Also, I think Not it's... on a writer's salary anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, like, important to say that, like, yeah, well, like, oh, you're not representative because, like, you're white and educated. It's like, first of all, like, a lot of strippers are actually educated, not always necessarily, like, university educated, but a lot of them are. And the industry is very white because of the racism within the industry. A lot of club owners and managers just won't hire black dancers. So the industry is extremely white. Um, obviously, that is something as activists that we do want to challenge. But yeah, saying that you're not representative because you're, you're a white woman is kind of like... Mm. Yeah, I mean, and it also just kind of it speaks to a sort of attitude that it's like, well, you know, it completely ignores the fact that if I'm fighting for anyone's rights, then I'm fighting for everyone else's rights as well. Like if I'm trying to challenge legislation that says we haven't got workers' rights, it's for everyone else as well. It's not just for me. So it just is, it's kind of logically doesn't really add up. But then I don't see much evidence that they're listening to non-white <laughs> people with, you know, a less kind of educated class or whatever. Like what? Because they're brainwashed victims. So <laughs> right. Sure. So, you know, you can't really win. It's like whether you have privilege or not, you don't have a voice. Yeah. And I suppose like context, I worked in the sex industry for years. Um, you, you know, the privileges that you are afforded, um, it doesn't mean you're extremely privileged in many ways, but actually that does make you more able to put forward those arguments. It makes you more listened to. You know, there are plenty of um, disadvantages that people have that actually make it more precarious, more dangerous for them to be outspoken about it. So expecting the people who are in the most precarious positions as a sex worker to be able to also be visible and vocal, um, that's really unrealistic and actually, you know, within sex work there are kind of different levels of you know you can also be a sex worker mm. but in, like forms of allyship within that um around otherwise minoritized experiences um and you being able you know you might have been more likely because of you know the fact that you've managed to get an education and and you know have experience writing mm. you might have been more likely to be able to get published for example mm, yeah um so you carrying the argument and advocating for people's rights across the board is kind of you know taking that argument is yeah yeah, absolutely. I think what we're really learning as a movement as much as possible is to be passing these threads on and passing the batons and to be, you know, bringing forward the voices of those with less privilege who are more precarious. Um, and that's something that the English collective of prostitutes are experts on, I would say. How's the union doing? Like, unionisation's been really, really in a bad way for decades since sort of Thatcher and... Uh people in more conventional jobs like retail and other stuff, they don't unionise nearly enough and it's really good to see that sex workers collectors have, have unionisation now. Like, is it getting members? Like, whose buttons are you trying to press? Who are you trying to agitate? <laughs> well, I think, well, because the uh, originally sex workers were unionising with the GMB which did not go so well for various reasons that I won't go into because I'm not trying to start beef. Um, <laughs> but then, yeah, obviously 2017, we um, started organising with United Voice of the World, which represents marginalised workers. And it's going OK. Uh, I mean, I think like recently we looked for our, our numbers and we like doubled our membership just in the last year. Mm. Uh, I think it's definitely easier to, it was originally a strippers union because obviously it's way easier to unionise a legal workplace. But now we're obviously unionising alongside um, full service workers 
um, who also work independently, etc., who don't necessarily have a workplace. But that doesn't mean that they don't face issues. We've got quite a few financial discrimination cases. Um, and yeah, we'll see support porn performers, uh, content creators like OnlyFans, etc., who might either have issues with the platforms or have issues with other content creators. We'll see now a lot of because OnlyFans are getting so big, there's kind of like managers now, there's a bit more of a structure as well. Um, so yeah, we just fight against exploitation in, in every corner of the industry, which can be difficult because sex work is really broad. It, yeah, it can also be difficult legally with like, you know, we had a case in actually Edinburgh recently uh, where one of the dancers tried to take the club to court. She demanded anonymity obviously claiming that like you know if she was to be outed uh, with her full name it could have consequences because of stigma she could be put at risk of like physical violence etc and the judge uh, replied well you got in the industry you knew what to expect did not grant her anonymity she had to drop the case um, so that's wow. also how the state in itself prevents us from getting justice and access to workers rights but, you know, most cases we do bring to court, we win. Um, we've got Danielle, if you hear this podcast, uh, <laughs> she's our legal caseworker. She is amazing. My first question was, I'm just interested in the use of the word ethical in your book title. I'm sure lots of people have asked you that, because that insinuates something. Uh, yeah. So I'm sure you've got something to say to that. And then secondly, throughout the evening, you've been kind of referring to feminists as like an other or like the feminist. And I feel like what you're talking about is feminism as well. And obviously feminism is a massive, historical, huge arc. And I just wondered what you feel around like identity around feminism within the sex workers, unions and collectives and fight. Do you want to answer the first question? Yeah. So why did I choose the term ethical stripper? I mean... I read The Ethical Slut many years ago and like the sex positive movement is very much kind of based on a sort of idea that there's ethical sex and then there's non-ethical sex. I suppose I was just drawn to the phrase, I, it was never my intention to set up this kind of dichotomy of like, well, there's the good women over here and then the bad women over there. Um, I knew it would get attention and it has, but I mean, I guess I wanted to kind of tease at this idea that there could be ethical transactional sex as well. And could there be, you know, like we've got ethical fair trade, like what about ethical sex work? Just in, the, in that kind of paradigm, if we are going to talk about ethical sex work, then what I mean is like safe sex work, harm reduction, evidence-based. About feminism, I think a lot of um, sex workers do feel left behind by the feminist movement. I think that's mostly from radical feminism from second wave feminism that is very white and privileged I think like I do still call myself a feminist even though that word for me especially since last year since I've been vocal in the press and had feminists attacking attacking me etc that word has been tarnished a lot uh, you know I would define myself as an intersectional feminist like more like third wave but obviously yeah it's hard when the radical feminists are extremely vocal um, online, in the press, uh, in parliament, you know, we've got Jess Phillips, Sarah Champion, uh, Diane Abbott, you know, when they're there trying to criminalise sex work and, and push for, you know, those really harmful policies, they're not showing solidarity towards me and they're calling themselves feminists, so like, what am I? I think sex workers have been um, very left behind and we're oh. treated as like second class women and you know when we have a lot of um, violence against women and girls organizations um saying that we're dangerous to society it's kind of mm. yes yeah, it's, it's a difficult one yeah i do i am a feminist but an intersectional one i suppose what i kind of want to ask kind of ends the night on a more uplifting note um you've spoken a lot about the institutional violence that you face as sex workers the silencing and censoring etc but you've also spoken a lot about the destigmatization and your agency and what sex work is actually like. And I was wondering, even though it might be a bit of a difficult question to answer on the spot, if there is a lesson that as sex workers or ex-sex workers you can kind of give to us about worker solidarity, 
or something that we can take away, something that you experience or you know the sex workers experience that we could all learn from. For instance, as you say, when I kind of see a lot of discussion around sex work and disability or sex work and race, I, I see like a very loving, wholesome community that is kind of, I don't know, I don't know, very connected and very, probably because it's largely female, very sororal, very like, like a sisterhood. And I was just wondering if there's something that you can kind of, kind of impart on us, like a lesson learned in a, in a changing room or when you're like complaining about your exploitative employers, like there's something you want to share, a bit of resistance or... Yeah, I think, um, I think it's really important, that's why we see um, the term sex work has been coined and why a lot of us do rally um, under that, that term that we're sex workers to build solidarity um, because essentially obviously the, the people who want to criminalise us and, and harm us, whether we're full service workers, strippers, porn etc, they're the same people so why would we not stick together and fight it together? Um, but also, as you were mentioning, you know, like race visibility, um, gender. Yeah, sex work is like an intersectional thing. That like we all end up here because of poverty, disability, racism, etc. So we we are a very mixed community. Uh, that yeah, we do our best to to stick together. I mean, like we're not all homogenous. That the word is that how mm. you say it? Uh, like obviously, you know, yeah, we're not. We don't all think the same. Obviously, we're all different people, and um, you know. Other sex workers could give you a very different answer, um, but obviously, as as activists, um, I think yeah, it's it's important that we stick together as marginalised workers, and that we also stand in solidarity with other marginalised workers and other marginalised community. Mm, yeah, provocative question. My mind's kind of like journeying through years and years and years of experience of like microacts of solidarity within our network. I think the message for me I, I'd want to kind of impart is that like people are made vulnerable by virtue of their like lack of community. If people do not have networks to support, to share, to cry together, to laugh together, to celebrate together, to share childcare, I mean, there's just countless examples of you know we've had meetings where you know girls turn up with their tiny babies and toddlers because that's part of what who we are and and when one of our members of the collective was abroad when their partner had a breakdown and fucking walked out and left her up a mountain with a toddler with no car uh, one of our members flew out there you know and spent a week like you know we we are so otherwise generally quite kind of lacking sort of support that what we do for each other means more than I could explain really. But the wider message I'd love the public out there to be aware of when they think of a sex worker is like not this kind of poor downtrodden victim, but like someone who's living, existing, surviving like anyone else who has the right to exist and to have support like anyone else. And, you know, you'd be amazed at like how much we really kind of come through for each other. And that's just narrative that's kind of missing, I think, from the public. Yeah, especially in Bristol, it's been like really nice to see, you know, despite what we've been going through, it's been like traumatic. It's been a horrible year. But so much good has come from it as well. Like when I joined Bristol Sex Works Collective, there was about 10 of us, there's like 50 of us now. Like the, the group has really grown. And you know, now we're able to offer like peer support every week. We don't organize in there, we just chat, have a cup of tea, cup of coffee, and just like, that's what we do. We just build community. And that's really what's gotten me through this year. And what's really also essential to, to organizing um, is yeah, that sense of community. I mean, even though what we've gone through is awful, we've also had the best times together. Um, I've built like really good friendships this year. And had I been like by myself, I could have never done the work that I've done. And I don't think, you know, people who've done work over the issue, around the issue, couldn't have done this either without, without all of us. So I think, yeah, that's, yeah, the message that, uh, you know, people should get is build community. Um, because this is what's going to get you through 
tough times and you know especially at the moment with the cost of living crisis yeah. etc what we need is yeah community Great. Once again, that was Stacey Clare, author of The Ethical Stripper, in conversation with Amelie from the Bristol Sex Workers Collective. If you're based in Britain and you want to read the book, then you can buy it online from Bookhouse. You just need to head over to bookhousebristol.com, and that's house spelt H-A-U-S. You can find out more about the Bristol Sex Workers Collective and their current campaigning at bristolswc.com and the link to the United Sex Workers Crowdfunder is going to be in the episode description as well, so do check that out. We hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in July with another episode of Radicals and Conversation and episode two of RIC In-House, where Pluto authors Asfa Shafi and Ilyas Nagdi will be talking about their new book, Race to the Bottom, Reclaiming Anti-Racism. It's going to be a good one. So until next time, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.